What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. But the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Where is the long ad read? You will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday, and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Let's get started, shall we? We have uh, a lot, a lot of stories to cover today. I'm almost a little bit intimidated by the amount of articles that I've chosen, but we're going to get through this because... I got to get prepping for an event later tonight, so we got to make this fast. I don't really have a choice. Let's start it off with this one, shall we? Well, let's talk about today's beverage real real swift here. Um, I have an Ethiopian, but it's from a different company uh, that I decided to brew Chemex style this morning. This has been kind of my go-to lately, I've kind of uh, aside from when I travel and bring an AeroPress with me, I think that the Chemex is my preferred way to brew, because the way that I do it is I do... Um, three cups in the morning. So then Anna gets one, I get one, and then I usually have my second one kind of after I finish the first one, after I, you know, complete most of what happens in my morning. And it's just so that I can continue to drink coffee and I don't have to switch to anything or take time out and brew a second cup. It's been really, really nice to have that. And I really, really am enjoying the Chemex. So what I do want to do real quick is um, thank some of the new Patreon Folks, and I am not logged in at the moment, which is strange. There we go. New patrons. Who do we have this month? Or I guess these two weeks. It's like a weird payment thing that happened uh, on Patreon. I have a Dan S, a Chris S, and a Guillaume. No, Guillaume P deleted his. So sorry, Guillaume P. Wasn't You weren't really feeling it. And I also have a, a Michael M., so thank you so much, everyone, just in general, who supports the content. I really hope you folks have been enjoying the long-form video podcasts that get published there, and some additional kind of behind-the-scenes that happens there. Really been enjoying uh, the back-and-forth that happens on Patreon. So the first article that I want to chat through is more of a excerpt from a podcast that Eater did. Uh, it's their—what podcast is it? The Eater's Digest podcast. And what was interesting about it is they attempted to give kind of a behind the scenes of being a food critic, which I thought was kind of interesting because as you come up in food, if you don't think that you're going to go the chef route or maybe you did spend a little bit of time in restaurants, it does sometimes make sense to shift and go to the food critic route. But I feel like, and it's always this kind of elusive thing where you see food critics that are doing their job and you're like, well, I could kind of do that if I wanted if I wanted to. And some people don't make the leap. Some people do. But I think that um, there was some interesting quotes here that I wanted to uh, give for your reference, not just... Not to defend food critics in any capacity, but I think that to get a little bit more empathy on both sides, and I'm going to get into that here in this piece, is going to make everybody overall a little bit more rounded. So to share one quick quote here, it says, quote, yes, at its most basic definition, food criticism is about getting paid to eat food and write about it. But though it might sound dreamy, 
The critic's life isn't as glamorous as it often is made out to be. From greedy relatives clamoring for a free meal to frequent mediocre but overpriced dinners and pushing dining schedules, the life of a restaurant critic is often an uncomfortable one, end quote. And (laughs) I've always been impressed with some friends of mine who are able to do that, who, you know, you see their Instagram story where it's like, they're in LA and they do like this place followed, this breakfast place where they have this massive breakfast sandwich followed by lunch at this place where they're doing like a crazy spread of uh, like Middle Eastern food. And then they go to like a tasting menu spot for dinner. And I've tried that when I travel and it's not easy for me to do that. And the article says something along the lines of that, where it's like, you're going from being full from one meal into another early reservation because it was the only spot you could get. And so you're kind of sitting down and I've shared this in this place called episodes where it's like, it's not the same experience going to eat somewhere where you're not hungry. It's not like a concert where you can just take in music for hours at a time. You can't take in food for hours at a time, uh, at a certain volume, if that makes sense. So I thought that was kind of interesting. There's another uh, quote here. It says, and this is from my favorite, uh, writer, author, Ryan Sutton, he says, quote, I never make a reservation under my own name. That's not just common sense, but it's part of my requirements here at my job. By going through these steps and jumping through these hoops, you're also letting your readers know that you can take your job seriously. And when you're making a reservation, you're not calling in favors, end quote. And this is under the heading, anonymity is key. And I think that I'm a little bit torn on this specific point because I feel like it sets this weird precedent with restaurants where you're almost starting off with a lie, especially if it's a restaurant that does its due diligence to research guests. I don't think critics necessarily fully grasp the amount of resources that gets poured into figuring out who certain people are. And I'm apprehensive to say this, but I I don't know if... Critics would almost be better off saying that they're a critic before dining. I don't dine under a pseudonym. I don't necessarily think I'm hot shit, and I don't think that restaurants 100% treat me differently when I do have a meal, but I also don't think that there's value in me. I mean, you're lying. You are operating under something that's not a fake identity, and I don't know if that's smart because it sets the precedent that I don't trust that you would do the right thing with the information if I told you the facts, right? And then it creates this awkward dynamic where if someone has been in the restaurant industry for years or maybe, God forbid, they took care of you and knew who you were from another restaurant job that they were in and they're like, hey, you booked under Bob Smith or whoever, but you're Ryan Sutton, and I know that you're Ryan Sutton, then it creates this weird dynamic throughout the entire meal. I don't know. Has anybody experienced that? Does anybody? Because I know, uh, I, I like to tell the story of when I was at Grace in Chicago, we had Phil Vitell come in, who is obviously the editor and food critic of the Chicago Tribune. He came in, and he was under a pseudonym, but it was under a pseudonym that was known that he was using around town. So, like, he would go to Parachute or Boca or insert nice Chicago restaurant, and he would book under—I'm using a random example—Timothy Leary, right? He books under Timothy Leary, 
which I know is actually a real person. And then the restaurant sees, oh, Phil Vitell is is Timothy Leary. He's operating under Timothy Leary, and most of these critics have like two or three names that they'll rotate through. And so then the restaurant shares amongst its peers, oh, if you see the name Timothy Leary come through, just know that it might be Phil Vitell. And I hope you're all following along with this. And then we see Timothy Leary come in, and we're like, oh, that's probably going to be Phil Vitell. Sure as hell, it's Phil Vitell. That's a good that's a good rhyme, Justin. And so it's just like this weird dynamic that ends up happening. And and so to round that out, hearing the sentence anonymity is key gets me kind of confused because it's like, is it though? Or is it this archaic thing that you think sets you up for an authentic experience? But then what ultimately happens is, oh shit, Ryan Sutton's here. And now everybody's freaking out and trying to overcompensate. Whereas if you were to just tell them transparently, hey guys, Ryan Sutton here. I'm coming in to do a piece on you guys. Don't you think that that would cause a little bit less panic and a little bit more of an authentic experience? Because in reality, if The Rock is coming in to eat at the restaurant and Dwayne Johnson is a... point on the reservation the restaurant is probably going to do a little bit of research to prepare for the rock coming in to eat and they're probably going to put in the due diligence to make sure that he has a good experience because he probably requires things that are different than normal people going out to eat and so wouldn't you argue that that is then an authentic representation of what a restaurant does for people I don't know, that's just where my head goes. It's not necessarily like, oh, we got to catch him by surprise so that I can eat a meal that's right for Joe Schmo. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? I'd really, really love to get into the conversation here because the anonymity part was the one that was like, I don't necessarily agree with that. They got another couple headings here that's picking restaurants as a process, which kind of pissed me off because something about, there was a piece that Ryan Sutton said where he says, um, he talks. He, he he goes in great depth talking about how when he writes, he's all about the story. He says there quote there are other times when we've gone four times to a place, sometimes more, and say this is a story we need to tell. Need to tell this story. Where's the other piece in here where he talks about telling a story? Anyways, and then the other funny the so f- so funny part is this heading is the tab isn't limitless, and he says. Uh, I would say the chief fact. I would say that the chief factor in me deciding what to order at a given restaurant is not, oh my god, I need to stay within budget. Instead, he asks himself, are other people ordering this, and can this help me tell my story better? I don't know, dude. I don't know if that's true. The other thing that says, and this goes into the scheduling part, the back-to-back tasting menu thing. The 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 heading is the schedule is punishing which is very interesting. Again, this is all from the Eater's Digest podcast, if you want to go ahead and listen to that and learn a little bit more about what it takes to become a food critic and what that life entails. I'm going to be honest. I was, I, I, I'm coming into this episode feeling a little bit heavy because there, in researching this there was there, and reading all these articles, there was a lot of shady restaurant business. And it makes me frustrated, and it it frankly stresses me out to read some of this stuff. So if this is not your cup of tea, 
you can probably fast forward a little bit more into the to the episode because we do get into some other cool, exciting listicles and some openings, but I want to spend a little bit of time on some of the not-so-glamorous stuff that happens in restaurants because I think that it's important to talk about this stuff and start a conversation about it. So the first piece is all about Gramercy Tavern, and I'm sure some of you, especially Danny Meyer fans, have seen this. I put this out on Twitter to see if anybody had thoughts on it. And the headline is, Former Gramercy Tavern Server Files Discrimination Complaint Against Danny Meyer's Restaurant. This is from Eater New York. So the person in question, Naomi Alexis, she has worked in the restaurant industry for the past 15 years, landed a coveted server position at the respected restaurant in 2018. Again, this is um, Gramercy Tavern. And so very similar to the story about Kwame, receiving a lot of, you know, perceived racism and noticing that the managers were creating a quote-unquote hostile work environment. And some of the stories that she tells are talking about allowing diners and other staffers to discriminate her, her discriminate against her based on her race and gender, including racial slurs and other instances in which managers mocked her braided hair, according to the complaint. So I think we have to kind of take this on a case-by-case basis, as with most of the things that I cover here. I don't think that it's okay to say that an entire restaurant group is racist. I think what often happens is there are certain people in restaurant groups who can have biases or points of view or not necessarily have the best outlook towards certain people, but then you have to peel back a little bit more to see, is this actually racism or is this politics? Because there's a lot of politicking that happens in these places. So it talks a lot about how the group as a whole has a quote-unquote diversity council to keep diversity, equity, and inclusion top of mind. And this is something that Danny Myers created in 2017. Um with the goal of having the company's demographics match the NYC population by 2024. And apparently they're not doing the best job on that. The Some of the stats are a little bit disappointing. I'm going to see if I can try to find some of these as I'm reading through. Um, it says, Most Union Square Hospitality Group employees who earn a yearly salary, including restaurant managers, with are white with only 11% being Hispanic and 3% being black, according to a February 2018 demographics report obtained by Eater. By contrast, the city is 29% Hispanic, 24% black, and only 14% Asian, according to U.S. Census data, which is probably not all that up to date because it's due to get revamped next year. So it's probably even more diverse than that if I had to take a stab at that. So let's talk about that specific, okay, so there, there's an occurrence where she details an incident, quote, where a staff member called her a black bitch in Spanish after she accidentally bumped into him when she reportedly, when she reported the racial slur to a manager and HR, she was asked to keep the incident to herself, she alleges in the complaint. So I think that on a case by case basis, again, is not okay to be forthcoming with this information and then get dismissed like that, I think is like a clear, that's not okay, right? And also having anybody call you a racial bitch, you know, insert racial term, bitch, is not okay. 
Um, so she says, quote, they handled it so poorly that at the end, it wasn't even about this gentleman calling me a black bitch. When the general manager sat down with me, he said, you can't go around telling people this is happening, end quote, which is a little bit of like firefighting damage control on the restaurant's part. Just it's fucked up. It's it's frankly fucked up. I don't think that one is OK. Right. Um, she says she was allowed to be part of the diversity meetings. I think is an interesting thing to call them. She says because of this, she claims she was invited to sit on the company's diversity council, a group she says was charged with making suggestions that would improve the ability to recruit and retain people of color. But the kicker was the restaurant wasn't allowing staff to clock in during diversity meetings, which sets a weird standard because Alexis says not paying for the council's very important work was wrong and undermined the company's supposed commitment to diversity, end quote. So I think the thought that was kind of interesting. Um, There was, so the point about her hair, I think is kind of interesting, where she, Alexis says, I quit soon after that following an incident in February in which two managers mocked my braided hair, one asking what kind of quote-unquote magic I used to get it styled that way. End quote. And I don't, I don't know, what do you folks think about that kind of sentence? Because you don't have all the context, right? Where they kind of doing the cliche thing of standing in a corner and pointing at her and snickering to themselves and she overheard this kind of stuff. Or was it just kind of a joking no, like way to bring up how you were actually impressed with someone's hair? Does that make sense? I don't know, because I know that this is a severe point of sensitivity with a lot of people on certain characteristics that they have because of their race, right? Like, I have a big nose. If someone was asking how I got my nose to be so big, it's because I'm half Indian, right? That could be seen as racist because you're talking about this thing that I don't have control over. But to talk about how you magically got your hair braided that way, I don't know if that's a racist thing or if it's just a the straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing, you know, where you've just been systematically getting, from your perspective, discriminated against, and then someone makes this comment about your hair, which you are sensitive about, and then it just feels like it has the tone of being racist, I don't know. Again, I'm trying to take this story by story. Uh, She says, quote, hair is an absolute proxy for race. I felt like the only black woman on the dining room floor, isolated, irritated, wary, anxious, and tired of being bothered, being othered. I just think it's interesting that I think that after over time, things that wouldn't normally be considered racist because most of us are restaurant industry people right there's joking around there's laughing there's poking fun at each other and we live in a very interesting time where where does that line get drawn of joking around and making fun when everyone's tired and exhausted and probably strung out on something from the night before and then all of a sudden it becomes this thing where oh this is racist now or this is discriminatory again i don't know I would be curious to hear your thoughts on it because it is a very sensitive topic. But I just wasn't expecting to see this from Gramercy Tavern specifically as someone who 
I staged there. I almost did my externship there. I did two out of the three stages that were required to have me say yes and sign the documentation to start my externship there. Because I really found a lot of inspiration in Gramercy Tavern. But going to eat there from the meal I had maybe three years ago, I would say that my majority of the dining room staff was white. I don't remember being like taken aback by like, wow, there's a lot of different representation here. Trying to tiptoe around all of this because I know that it's very easy for this kind of off-the-cuff conversation that I'm trying to start can get perceived as me being insensitive or not understanding all of the the pieces. So if you have more things that you'd like to share with me to make sure that I can become more knowledgeable about this stuff, I'm always super appreciative of that. And I think most of you folks know that. But again, we live in a time where it's easy for people to get triggered. So I want to lay that out there that I'm super comfortable receiving more information if you have it or if you have more stories that you want to share. This is kind of like a cool place to be able to talk about that stuff because you're saying it directly to industry people. This is not going out on Twitter where someone's mom who works at a bank and has no idea what all these other little nuances of restaurant world comes with. I don't know. I just think that most people here understand what a kitchen environment is like. So that's kind of what I wanted to bring up. Um, If you have thoughts to share, please tweet at me or let me know down below. Um, In a refreshing piece that was kind of a great change of pace, along the same lines, it's not all puppies and rainbows with this story, but it's um, from Amanda Cohen, who is the chef and owner of Dirt Candy in New York. And the article is all about minimum wage. So it's titled, Restaurant Owners Should Embrace the $15 Minimum Wage. And she shares a few stats of how she runs her business. She says, um, I barely felt this minimum wage increase. I had to raise a few of my part-time prep workers from 15 an hour to 16 or 17. And she says, my front of house workers already make between 20 and 25 and $30 an hour, and my back of house team gets paid 17 to $20 an hour. And this is all about how New York is going to raise their minimum wage to $15 an hour on January 1st of this year. Oh, no, it already happened. So I hope most of you New York people are feeling the effects of that in maybe good ways, or maybe if you're a restaurant owner, you're feeling it in not so great ways. Share some stats from the New York City Hospitality Alliance, which they conducted this single survey a month before this change went into effect, and it says 76.5% of full-service restaurant respondents reduced employee hours, and 36.3% eliminated jobs in 2018 in response to the mandated wage increase. And then it says 53% of those will eliminate jobs in 2019, so be curious to hear if any of you folks are feeling the effects of that. Um, it, what I thought was interesting was the fact that she took this from the lens of looking at New York City's restaurant sphere as a whole and basically saying like, come on guys, like we, we have to do better in other different ways to make sure that we can continue to attract people to her city, her city that she loves so much and has lived in and cooked in for years now. She says, quote, apparently I am an idiot for thinking the minimum wage is just that, the bare minimum. Why would I expect my employees to give me their best if I'm giving them the minimum? I also wonder how anyone who makes more than minimum wage feels comfortable eating in a restaurant that pays its employees minimum wage. But then again, I'm from Canada and we're encouraged to think that way, end quote. 
I think that's a great way to look at it. I think, uh, does that resonate with any of you? I'd love to hear a little bit more about that down below. She says, quote, recently I got introduced to a new negotiating tactic among key, amongst young cooks. Wait until the middle of a busy shift and then threaten to walk off the line unless you get a $5 an hour raise. In the past, that kid would have been kicked out of the kitchen so fast his head would spin, but today he knows that replacements are hard to come by, so I would have to keep him on for at least a couple more days at his increased rate. As I have to pay more and more to keep workers, I'm also hit by the costs the customer will never have to see. Beyond every dollar, I raise my 25-person staff's wages I'm also paying another $35,000 per year in payroll taxes and general liability insurance, LLC insurance, unemployment insurance, and workers' comp, all of which are pegged to the size of your payroll, end quote. And I think that's a really interesting kind of dichotomy, right, where you have the line cook who is acknowledging the state of the market and using these kind of guerrilla, very guerrilla negotiation tactics and then you have the perspective of the business owner, which is like, listen, as I grow my team and as I start to increase the amount that I'm paying you guys, you're also I'm also getting hit with a bunch more stuff on the back end. So I think, one, I would love to hear if you have a story of trying a, st- a tactic like that, if it worked out or not, because I, in all my years of working in restaurants, have never seen someone just blatantly do that kind of a request during a service. And I'm sure that there's funny stories that come along with that and probably painful stories that come along with that. I'm not saying do that. This is not me advocating for you to be like, this is probably a smart idea. I think you should do this. No, don't do this. But if you've seen it happen or if you've done it, I would love to hear the story because I think that's a hilarious story. But I think what I wanted to share with you, if you are an employee or if you are someone that works in a team with someone who is above you or manages the finances or you have an HR department, I think what's important to think about is the fact that you have people who are incurring costs that are more than just, oh, well, I get seventeen fifty an hour or I don't work in New York City where the cost of living is so high and so it's bullshit that I they value my time at just 11.50 an hour. Yes, that was the offer, but you also have to be empathetic to the fact that the business owner has all these other expenses that come with it that cost more than 11.50 an hour and they're getting charged, they're getting asked to pay things from other people whether it's the government or insurance companies or whatever. And this is all to keep the lights on, right? It's not things that you see as a benefit as an employee. This is literally required by law to open the doors. And so I think that if, I wish I would have known this kind of stuff because, I mean, I remember it took me maybe like six months of working at for Thomas Keller to fully utilize my 401k plan. I didn't know what the fuck 401k was. And the fact that my employer matched a certain percentage of it, it was so stupid for me to not do that. But I got smart and I thankfully had another colleague of mine who had Jewish parents who were much more financially sound and they gave him that advice and then that became something that I took advantage of. And so what I'm trying to say is I didn't have the full grasp of what was going on under the hood of a business and restaurant group that large and what was required to do that kind of stuff. And so I think 
that is something just to keep top of mind and something for you to go into other negotiations with, or even if you're getting these offers where you're like, well, that's kind of not worth it for me. Come to terms with what else goes along with that. Do you get benefits? Do you get investment opportunities? Um, do they have opportunities for growth at other places who wouldn't give you? I think that it's much more than just what your hourly wage is. I say it all the time. Value isn't always just monetary, right? Um, I do want to leave you with a, with this article on a little bit of a quote that she talks about with New York City and the restaurant industry as a whole. She says, quote, the biggest effect of the restaurant business's short-sightedness is the one that depresses me the most, and I don't know how it can be reversed. New York City is losing its soul. More and more restaurants here are actually restaurant concepts designed to be replicated elsewhere, not unique, one-of-a-kind dining experiences. There's nothing wrong with making money, but if that comes if that becomes a sole metric of success, then we're doomed to lose what has made us the greatest food city in North America. Failing to keep the city viable for restaurants that experiment means seeding our innovation elsewhere. New York has less and less room for young chefs with big ideas. The financial stakes are too high, so more and more menus play it safe, sticking to the familiar items because they need to appeal to the most possible customers. I moved to New York in 1992 because this city's food scene was alive and exciting and adventurous in a way nowhere else was. If I were a young chef in 2019... I would have a hard time coming up with reasons to move here at all. I can sell a beet and goat cheese salad anywhere. I don't have to pay New York City rents to peddle yet another plate of crudo, end quote. I guess there is one more quote that's kind of funny in this, and I want to piggyback on that last quote, but I do want to share this one. She says, quote, I don't believe in a restaurant industry. An industry is regulated and has a central governing body and shared standards. We're more like a herd of drunk cats running around in circles and peeing on the furniture. However, writing the restaurant herd of drunk cats is over and over is exhausting. So let's settle on business. The restaurant business. So, I mean, I'm a testament to this first quote, right? Talking about how you don't have to be in New York, New York City anymore to make it. I think that's like an amalgamation of a ton of things. I don't think it's just because of minimum wage. I don't think it's just because of fast casual concepts. I think it's because also of the internet, right? Like more people are seeing food that's not burgers and fries and pizza. And so then they get excited about hearing about a place in town that does, you know, insert cuisine type or dining style type. And so you, it's true. You don't have to be in New York anymore to succeed and be one of the best restaurants in your community. But I think that it's definitely, she does touch a little bit and I'm not going to go too deep into it here, but she does talk a little bit about automated work. And I think it's, um, kind of interesting. She says, if you think robots aren't coming for your job, I wish you'd been with me when I went to a bar, beer bar in Virginia where I swiped my card over the tap I wanted and a POS system charged me by the ounce. Basically saying, bartenders are, she says, quote, you're a bartender, question mark? Too bad. Those jobs will be gone. Which I think is a little bit too much fear-mongering. Talks, talking about how you have to pay extra for the human touch. I don't think... Uh, all of this is totally dead, but I think it's an interesting conversation to start, and I think that she raises a lot of really good points, and I think that we're just going to see the cost of having a human do the job go up and up and up until we hit that inflection point where the cost to have someone automated is going to be similar. I don't think it's going to be necessarily better or cheaper yet. I think we're 
years, years, years out from seeing that happen. I think right now it's more of a gimmick than anything else to have a robotic arm serve you a beer. I think there has to be a couple more things that happen. It's going to be interesting to see if and when an economic downturn happens, how that shakes things up, and who is able to rise through the ashes of that with automated services and products. I know this is heavy, guys. We got to keep going. <laughs> got to keep going. This is depressing conversations, but we're going to get to... The, the light is is coming soon. There's a guy I follow on Twitter named Richie Nakano, and his uh, handle is at LineCook, and he posts some really hilarious things sometimes. Sometimes it's definitely a little bit inflammatory, but he wrote a piece for... Was it Eater? Let's see. No, Food and Wine. He wrote a piece for Food and Wine, and it's called Chefs Are Tired. And it just tells a story of um, Sarah Rich from Rich Table in New York, uh, in San Francisco. And it talks about how she starts her day at 6 a.m. and how she ends her day at around 11.30 p.m., which I think is kind of interesting. Uh, chefs juggling work and life and, quote, in... Years past, much of the kitchen crew would hit the bar after service to pound back shots of Jameson, sometimes accompanied by a bag of cocaine, but all the chefs I spoke to said that exercise is now what keeps them going. Be curious to hear your story if you have something like that where you used to be caffeine or alcohol or marijuana or other drugs to keep you going, and now you've switched to meditation or exercise or spending time with people in certain capacities or, you know, other hobbies that give you energy. I think that's a really motivating thing to hear about from someone who, I mean, I didn't resort to any substances, but I was definitely not healthy, quote unquote. My posture was bad. I had no muscle mass on me. I wasn't eating all that healthy. I would go to work and then come home and sleep right? I didn't have anything that kept me going in between. And that was partially because I was kind of obsessive. Thank goodness I didn't resort to doing any substances. But it happened right around the time when I started managing, when I realized that I was just spending too much time at the restaurant. And I was like, exercising will actually help take my mind off of the restaurant. And that's kind of what I would do before work to make sure that I and yeah, it definitely gave me more energy. I could tell that I would enter the kitchen with a little bit more like confidence as opposed to just kind of rolling out of bed and walking to work, which I would do most days. Like if I had to start work at 11, I would wake up at 10:15 and then brush my teeth and go into work. That's kind of how it would go. Like I wouldn't eat breakfast. I wouldn't make coffee. Like I would have my first cup of coffee at the restaurant. Um so I'd be curious to hear if you've had any things that um, if you want to read this piece, it's linked, of course, down below as always, but it talks a little bit about sustainability and it talks about what it takes to be a restaurant owner where it's more than just coming in and cooking, especially if you want to have a family, right? It's not a lifestyle that is conducive or like I said, sustainable for everyone, which I think is interesting. Okay. Last maybe second to last story I want to cover on this piece. And this is only because it's, uh, it was sent to me by my friend Connor who I ate at this restaurant with the other day. And I think I just want to tell the story and then let you take it for what it's worth, depending on what kind of where you are in your 
journey. Your journey. So this is about a restaurant in Capitol Hill here in Seattle called New, and I ate there the other night. Had a great meal. Food was great. I didn't get sick. But the headline of this is New Denies Unsanitary Kitchen Practices After Cook's Online Allegations. And so to give you a little bit of backstory on this, Quinn, Quindolyn Harley, she worked at a restaurant here called Poppy, and she has eight years restaurant experience. And she was hired as a sous chef at this place called New. And she noticed... I'm going to read from Twitter from her now. She says, I immediately noticed some health concerns. Raw chicken was being cut and prepped in the dish area. Raw lamb was being thawed in the mop sink. Knives were not cleaned between uses. Saute pans were not cleaned between uses. And she says, I attempted to point out these issues to the executive chef and was immediately asked to leave the restaurant and never return. My concerns were for the health and safety of the restaurant's customers, and they were completely ignored. My attempts to reach out to the owner were ignored. End quote. So she said, and then, so the the restaurant clapped back on Twitter saying tonight was Quindolin's first shift and she showed up 30 minutes late. She was very critical of us and our staff, despite that we have excellent health rating and great reviews. We decided she was not a good fit for new. She then threatened us and made a scene with our customers, end quote. And I think what's interesting with this is the fact that she has photos to go along with it. And I'm going to see if I can open this entire thread and see if. Yeah, so there's definitely a mop sink with lamb in it, and the mop sink is not clean. And there's a dirty pot in it soaking, too. And the knives are not clean on that magnetic thing. I mean, listen, it is an open kitchen in in new. We ate outside on, like, the patio area outside, so I didn't have that many eyes on the kitchen itself. Maybe this looks like kind of a back prep area, but I think it's in, it's... Let's see. This is 528 likes and 168 retweets from Quindolin. Hmm. There's 162 comments on news tweet here. But I think in a lot of regards, you it, it's good and bad, I think, because the restaurants now don't have complete authority they are not the only gatekeepers anymore. They can't control the narrative. And I think that that's very powerful, and I think that it's great that that is the case. I think that any instance where both parties can have their side of the story heard is great. I think what I wanted to come to you with and share this story with is from the perspective of it helps so much in these articles that come out. I mean, we've had people, we've seen people blow up overnight because of allegations of this and documentation of that. And here's, uh, he said, she said is basically how things go now. And so to have as much proof as you can is so helpful. If you're a staff member, even if you're not a staff member, if you're a manager and you can have video of the confrontation when Naomi Alexis's hair gets commented on. I think that is so much more valuable than what's happening here because this is, you know, a staff member who is new taking photos of what you're doing in your restaurant, seeing that it's questionable, and then posting it on the internet. 
and the article says something along those lines where it talks about um, how, let's see. She, uh, the restaurant says, my wife and I have already spent hours trying to put out the fires caused by these artificial accusations and still don't know what long-term damage, if any, they will cause. Twitter has re- refused to remove the comment and Google has not responded. Yelp has said they look fake and that their re- algorithm will probably take care of it. It says a worker can spend three hours in an establishment that has worked so hard for five years and make such a negative impact as Quindlin has has through social media in less than a day may be a sign of the times we live in, but unjustifiable and sad nonetheless. So where does my head go with this? I don't know. I think that they probably have gotten, let's see, there has been a follow-up inspection at new. There have been new quotes from the King County Health Department, and I think that there says something in here about how the health department wasn't able to see Uh, It says, the rep for the department also notes that over the last four routine inspections before this one, New has had very few critical violations, earning them an excellent rating. So this is a, I don't know, this is a conversation about did they see the health department come in and just move the lamb thawing in the sink? Or was the timing just so that there wasn't any lamb in the sink at that time? Were the knives just happened to be clean? on the time, or maybe they had a new staff member come on who just has really bad habits. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's very stressful to think about this stuff because I was, you know, when I was in management, I was tasked with a lot of kind of important responsibility to keep the restaurants standing good and in good standing. Talking about how she showed up 30 minutes late is kind of like a that doesn't justify your bad health practices, right? Like, cool, she showed up late, but what about your dirty restaurant, you know? Do I think the photos are fake? I don't know. Again, the more proof you have in, in conversations like this, I think that the, the better off you're going to be on both sides, right? I don't think that it's out of the ordinary to document this kind of stuff anymore. And it's more than just HR log of when so-and-so messed up. I think it's got to be more than that. Because what it turns into otherwise is you're going off of people's word. And who are you going to believe? It depends on you, right? If you see Union Square Hospitality Group as the end-all, be-all of restaurant things, you're going to believe them over an employee that's al- like saying things that are trying to tear them down. Share your thoughts. I'd love to know your thoughts, as per usual. Let's take that one away. Um, let's go into some, you know, nicer news here. The editor, not editor, an author from Grub Street had a conversation with Sarah Gray Miller, who is now the editor-in-chief of Sever magazine, which, if you haven't been following the show for a while, we covered them doing a lot of downsizing. It's not that they completely closed. It's that they did, I mean, their readership dropped from 1.5 million readers in 2016 to 400 and just over 400,000 readers in 2019. So they lost over a million readers in three years. It's a little bit crazy. And it talks about how they went through a couple of different editor-in-chief chiefs, three in less than two years, 
which is kind of crazy. But this woman is very excited to breathe some new life into the publication. So she spent some time as the editor of the quote-unquote chronically unstable publication Modern Farmer. But it was a pretty hard-hitting interview. It talks some of the questions, right, where... It says, she, the interviewer asks, quote, even so, many of the big food publications have done major pushes into digital, while Sever's digital footprint has shown almost no growth in the past three years. Online is where all these brands are finding new generation of readers, as kind of a question. And then Sarah Gray Miller says, everyone's got a website got an Instagram feed, but print has a halo effect and things are often taken very seriously. And I do think it's important not to degrade it. I think it's a mistake when it's like, let's just cut the paper, the paper quantity. You get to a point where you're like, well, I might as well just read this online. So a magazine should feel like the handcrafted luxury item. It should be a worthy physical product. I think about stories differently when I think about how they're going to look on the printed page than how I do when I think they're going to look on the website. So Similar theme throughout this whole thing as far as like, what are you planning on doing with Sever? What's the plan for the stories you're trying to tell? So the punchline is it's going to be a quarterly publication in the same way that we've seen a lot of publications go. Um, I'm intrigued to see what happens with this if they want to go luxury because that means that they're probably going to have to take more ads out because how are they going to pay their people? And who are they going to choose to do the ads? And I think it's an issue of maybe digging your heels in and committing to this, but it's also, and this interviewer justifiably so asks, quote, how can Sever become more relevant when there's so much noise in the food space? And she says it, the new editor-in-chief says it. She says, when I think about like Bon Appetit's digital presence, there are so many resources poured into that. It's amazing what they're able to do. It's not like I'm saying that's my model for what I want to do, but I think we've all been there when something small and upstarty breaks through the noise. I'm not just talking about magazines. I'm not even talking about media. It's an invention. I've always had a hard time being the editor-in-chief. My editor's levers call, I've always called it get down on the floor and roll around with your readers because I'm one of them. Everywhere I've worked, I've considered myself to be. It's interesting. It's not all that clear of a strategy as far as like we want to do quarterly magazines and we're not really going to do anything all that digital in 2019. You could argue that that would kind of, I mean, we see it. I I picked up an issue um, on a recent trip where I picked up the issue of Airbnb's magazine and it's all about solo travel, the first issue. And I loved reading it. It was definitely like midway through the uh, the publication, an ad for Airbnb, and it talked about different people's Airbnbs. But you see this company that lives its entire life digitally, quote unquote, and then they're pivoting to do a printed publication that you can't find online. I mean, you can probably find some of those articles online, but you get what I'm saying. She asks... Why should people be excited about Sever again? Why do you think right now is the time people shouldn't be thinking, uh-oh, there's been another change, but I can't wait to pick up the next issue? Really hard-hitting questions. But the new editor-in-chief says, I don't think people should count us out. This isn't the first time I've walked into something that existed for a long time and got people excited about it. So they're going to tell more stories. It's probably going to be really pretty. It's probably going to be kind of glossy, but also attempting to be 
edgy and authentic. I, I don't know. I was never a severe reader. I looked at a few issues when I was in culinary school because the CIA had a great library. And I just liked nerding out over nice food photos. I think this is a great step in the right direction of someone who is coming at it from a place of love. She says somewhere in the article that she would do this work for free. So she's not trying to become famous or make a gajillion dollars off of this role. I think she's really has a genuine desire to breathe new life into this. But I just think that like in 2019 to come to terms with the fact that you're not going to be like the audience isn't a hundred percent defined for this, right? It's people who want Sever as a coffee table edition. And I think that there's enough people in this space who are doing it with way less resources, a la toothache, right? Or it's someone who is providing a little bit more value to the people who want to have this on their coffee table, a la Bon Appetit, right? Where you interact with Bon Appetit in more ways than just getting their magazine delivered to your door or picking it up from a newsstand. So if you're a reader of Sever, I'd love to hear your talk, your chat, just hear what your thoughts are on this. If you've been like, oh man, I'm so excited about this. Or if you're like, I don't really care, I don't read this. Love to know your thoughts. Pivoting to something that I tweeted about and I'm very excited to see return, Good Eats is back. And I was very happy to watch the newest episode. It's great to see Alton Brown back on the screen talking about things that get him excited and it's just such a fantastic inspiration for me making content, right? If you folks have watched Good Eats before, I know especially those of you that are like really like to get nerdy about food, Good Eats was like such a change of pace or a refreshing breath of fresh air f- compared to the heavily manicured, stylized, housewife catered content that was the Food Network in 1999, right? When this show aired um he did a great ama on reddit if you guys want to check that out that's linked through this grub street article and for those of you that don't know what good eats is you just need to watch an episode because it definitely dictated you know a lot of content that went after it and i think that it's so great that they've stuck to kind of the ethos of it with inserting skits into it and amazing camera movements and props and explanations that go deeper than just telling you how to make I mean the first episode is about chicken parm right so it's called good eats the return and it's all about total dedication to cooking great food at home and I know there's a quite a few of you that are on the channel and that listen to my stuff and you are just a home cook at least that's what you call yourself right and so I think you get a lot of value from shows like this, and I'm sure you're already on it. But if you didn't know, Good Eats is back. Another very exciting piece that I'm excited to hear about, but I was very interested. I I wanted to cover it because I thought it was funny how they reported this. Eater is sharing the idea that Corey Lee plans to open a new San Francisco restaurant But they say potentially serving Korean barbecue in the mission. But how they got this information was from the liquor license application. So in the same way that, you know, phones these days get leaked because 
people get mock-ups sent to them to design cases, restaurants get ousted because they have to put in their liquor license applications so far in advance. So, of course, Corey Lee has in situ at the San Francisco MoMA. He has Monsieur Benjamin and, of course, Bennu. But this place has the business name on the liquor license of San Juan LLC. But we'll see what happens on that. I've only had Monsieur Benjamin. I haven't had in situ, and I haven't had the opportunity to eat at Bennu yet. But Bennu is so ridiculously high on my list. It's crazy. Okay, another listicle I want to talk about that caused a lot of stir online because of the homie Soleil Ho is this piece from Bon Appetit where they put out their list of the 50 best new restaurants, but Andrew Knowlton put his restaurant on the list. Whether or not that was deserved or not, I think the way that they went about it was kind of shady. So Soleil tweeted it from Chris Crowley, where the tweet is, Bon Appetit, uh, bon Appetit editor-in-large Andrew Knowlton's restaurant is on Bon Appetit's 50 best new restaurants list, and he was intimately evolved with the list until this year. Strange how that's worded. But Soleil tweeted, you can't help but laugh at the sheer balls of this move. And the funniest part is, there are screenshots of the piece where they don't disclose the information, then this went semi-viral on Twitter, and then they changed it. So before, the place called Carpenter's Hall in Austin didn't say anything. And now it says, editor's note, Andrew Knowlton, BA's editor-at-large, is involved in the restaurant. It's interesting. So there's a couple places that stood out to me on this list. I'm not that shook up about the drama of the whole thing. I think that um, a lot of people saying, what did they say on Twitter here? Basically saying that he was using it to, oh, it was too product placement-y. And I think that's interesting that they're doing that. But the list has a couple places. I mean, I like to use these lists as places that um, are kind of hip and hopping and that I should go to if I'm visiting some of these cities. A lot of them are crossovers of places we've seen on Eater's list of best new restaurants, so that's kind of great to see. Adamix I definitely want to go to. What else do we have on here? There's a place in Seattle called Bai Tay that's on this list, which I was supposed to go eat at the other day, but I never... Um, we were too early, and it was two of us, and there was only one seat left at the counter, so we went and got ramen somewhere else. But I do want to go to Bai Tay because I've heard great things. Centro and Popovu in Minneapolis. That's where I did my pop-up with Spencer. Love that restaurant. Both those restaurants. The team is great there. Sorry, guys. I'm just scrolling through to see if there's anywhere else in here that kind of piques my interest or that I need to try out. Kopotiam, another duplicate. Loved that restaurant for breakfast with Abe from Eating Tools. Uh, I was going to go to Lineage in Maui when I was there, but I did not. Sad. Sad, sad, sad. Yeah, definitely check out the list if there's places that you, if you've been, you know, off the radar for a little while and you want to check if anywhere in your city is on the map. I mean, I'm going to use this as a reference. I'm not going to say that this is correct, because who am I to say these things? I'm always intimidated by uh, these lists that cover the whole country, 
because I just don't have time to go eat at all these places. But that's linked up down below if you want to go check it out. In a list that I was, you know, I was interested to see how it got published and how it got named and the marketing of it all. Food and Wine did a list of the world's best restaurants. But the kicker is the places that they cover are North America, South America, Africa, and the Middle East. So no Australia, no Europe. How can you call this the world's best restaurants? A couple other things that they say that make it, you know, kind of interesting is they sent an anonymous critic around. Her name is Besha Rodell. And it's a, it's a fusion project between travel and leisure and food and wine. And the other thing is that they had a panel of people that went through on this. I'm going to see if this is actually going to open for me. I don't think it's going to open for me. Um, yeah, there's a really interesting panel. No, there isn't. But anyways, um, I just don't think that you can go to, what is the stats that she says? 81 restaurants in 24 countries across six continents, stayed in 37 hotels. Who cares? Spent 279 hours in the air. Who cares? Traveled more than a hundred thousand miles to arrive at a list of 30 restaurants. So Basically, what this is, is I ate at 81 restaurants, and here are the 30 best ones, right? Don't call it a list of the world's best restaurants. It's not fair. It's not accurate, is what it is. Blue Hill at Stone Barns is on this list. Jose Enrique in Puerto Rico is on this list. N. Naka in LA is on this list. Swan Oyster Depot in SF is on here, The Gray in Savannah, Georgia. It's just not comprehensive enough. They left a panel in, like, how they selected this list of people who had contributions, and it was well-rounded. There was a lot of people on the list that had opinions that I respect, but it's kind of like, if you're going to put, if you're going to title it World's World's Best Restaurants, and world's 50 best restaurants, someone who's also going to show up in SEO with you calls their list world's 50 best, but it's really a list of 100 restaurants, and you only visited 81 restaurants? You're crazy. Why not just call it something else? I'm not mad that they made the list. I never get mad at people for making lists. Because the fact of the matter is the market's going to decide if they respect your list or not. I think what's interesting is that they called it world's best restaurants. And you're not even going to go to Europe. What the hell, man? It's very interesting. Uh, yep, we covered that one. Did we cover this one? Yep, we covered that. Just going to double check and make sure I'm not missing anything here. Um, I do want to get into direct answer. Because it was an interesting question, and I definitely know that I don't have enough context to fully riff on it, but it's I promised this gentleman that I would answer this question on the podcast, so here we go. Underscore, 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 period, Pete, period, underscore, 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 asks, want to start by saying thank you for making my videos. You're welcome. 
says, I want to do, he knows I do Q&As. So I'm from Australia, currently in my third year of an economics degree. I really want to pursue a career in the restaurant industry as a chef, but don't want to go to culinary school. I'm really close to finishing my bachelor's and I don't want to add three more years on. For a while, I've been working in two cafes as a cook and sending out stagiaire inquiries. I'm pretty much trying to practice what I can do. So when I get to a kitchen on a stage, I'll be as efficient slash good slash reliable as I can be. He's curious about my point of view or any insight I might have about chefs who have done this. All right. So why stay in economics, I guess, is my first question that I would probably ask is because you thought it seemed like a good career path, but then your passion is elsewhere. Because I understand the desire to want to finish your degree, but if it's not going to benefit either paths, like if it's not going to make you a better person in economics and it's not going to make you a better chef, it seems like it's just wasting a little bit of your time. And I understand that you probably have financial obligations that you've made and all that. And there's a little bit of sunk cost bias in there. But overall, I think you just need to dive a little bit more into it. I think that from your perspective, you don't have an issue with education. I think it's an issue of you don't, you're being a little impatient with your time, right? Because you should go to culinary school if that structured environment is conducive to what you like to, is helpful for how you learn. But it seems like the work ethic is not the problem, right? Because you're willing to go to school and work at two cafes to try to better yourself in this industry that you don't even have a full grasp on if you enjoy it or not, right? So that would probably be my first piece of advice is send more stagiaire emails because once you get your time in a restaurant, then you're fully going to realize because it seems like you're in a place where you haven't tasted enough yet to know that this is for sure what I want to do because you have this uncertainty about economics and you also have this other thing that might seem a little bit more exciting, but you might see that there's an in-between, right? You might see that being the bookkeeper for, and I'm saying bookkeeper as a broad term, right? You might see something where you fuse economics and food or economics and restaurants together. There's a lot of chefs out there who suck with numbers and they need some help. And you can be the right-hand financial man to he or she that wants to open a restaurant, right? So I definitely think that you have to have a little bit of restaurant experience to empathize and have those conversations with that person that you're going to partner with. Or maybe you become a restaurateur. I don't know. I think that you need to taste more. That's kind of my advice. So you need to have that stagiaire experience. As far as like what you're going to glean from that, I don't nec- like. I don't think that you have to set yourself up with that much pressure to think that your first stage is going to be the one that you started off as a stagiaire and became owner of the restaurant. Right? Those stories are so rare. And you would have to be so lucky to find a place that fits that well and resonates with you in that way, right? Your first stage is going to be something where you're going to go, you're going to help someone with their prep list for the day, and then you're going to get to the end of the stage and the person that you helped a year later probably isn't going to remember what your name is because that's just the nature of it, right? Restaurants move so fast. So I think you need to have the experience to know that being a chef is actually something that you want to do because working in a cafe and being a chef of a restaurant are 
not even on the same playing field, right? They're very different positions. So ponder that a little bit. Definitely hoping you have some success with the stagiaire requests and inquiries. I think um, if you have capacity to travel after you finish your economics degree or if, you know, your education, if your school has a summer holiday and you can go travel somewhere to commit to a restaurant for a little bit longer, that might be a way to get your foot in the door because you're saying, you know, I'm going to stage for two weeks instead of just a day or I'm going to stage for a month. If you have, and if you live in Melbourne and you have an aunt that lives in Sydney and you can go stay with her for a month and stage at a restaurant, that might make a little bit of sense to you. Do you know what I mean? If you're having issues getting stagiaire requests to go through. So I hope that helps. That was direct answer. Thanks for the DM. Always appreciate hearing from you folks. Non-industry story, a channel that I've really been enjoying and really just want to put on your radar, especially if you folks are into comedy, and I'm sure some of you have already heard of him, is Chris D'Elia. He has a, he's a comedian. He's based out of LA. He has a podcast called Congratulations. I don't even like his stand-up routines all that much, but he has some bits in his podcast that are hysterical. And it's part of the reason why I've started publishing some clips on YouTube in this way is because I've just been so inspired watching. So I haven't listened to an episode of Congratulations all the way through, which is his podcast. I only listen to the clips because they're like six to 12 minutes long and they're bits that he just goes on and rants on about insert topic. He basically does what I do, cover the news, but he's a comedian and he's hilarious and I just really like his style of comedy. I always just laugh out loud to myself as I'm staring at my iPad or on my phone on the toilet. And I just like, I love his stuff. So I'm going to link the clips channel in this, in these show notes, specifically a video of him where he talks about being at the airport really early in the morning. And I lost my shit when I was listening to this episode. And you don't have to listen to the whole podcast. But the clips are so funny, and they really make me laugh, and I would really like to see Crystal alive someday, even though I think his stand-up is fine. His stand-up is good. I just think the inside joke element of his podcast is what gets me to continuously come back. And I, when I see it in my subscriptions, I always click on it first. So I really, really like that. Um, what do I have for updates for you folks? couple really exciting interview episodes coming soon. I'm going to be in New York all next week. Hopefully this episode will be out by then. Um, let's see. Not much else to say there. Just kind of a bit of a push business-wise for us right now. It's busy season. Um, working on getting a shop page up for you folks. That's a little bit of a end of the podcast update for those of you that listen this far in. Um, yeah, I think that's it. I really appreciate you listening and being patient as I upload. I, I like to think that I've been doing pretty good at uploading lately. Oh, new, new This Place Called episode coming out very, very soon. Probably already live. Um, but yeah, I've really been enjoying the, the, the podcast now more that I don't put so much pressure on myself to sit there and write so much. That's been kind of a big game changer for me. And, um, 
yeah, I'm going to be a guest on another podcast coming up pretty soon, which I'm excited to have that interview on because I like talking to other people and being on other people's podcasts now that I have a little bit more confidence in myself on how I'm able to riff off the cuff on these. It took me two years to do it, but I'm here now. Feels really good, folks. It really, really does. Like, thinking about where I used to have to do take after take after take and restart the footage and, oh man, I'm maybe I'm just not feeling it today and then have to psych myself up and I'd have to have a script that I would read word for word off of. And now I can do a just over an hour long, I can't really see the camera's kind of far away, podcast without a script, with just a list of articles. I used to look at people in awe. And I'm not saying I'm an amazing podcaster. I'm just like, for my own sanity, to know that I'm not crippled by anxiety of turning a camera on and putting out content to, what is it, almost 13,000 people now on the YouTubes. It's just, pretty, it's, it's, it feels good. And in the vein of me wanting to be a little bit more congratulatory to myself and acknowledge these things. Um, yeah, that's what I got. Okay, I gotta go. Jade is calling me because we have a finance meeting, so that is how it's gonna go. I will chat with you folks shortly. Um, thanks for listening. Roll the outro. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normal where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to so I'm just gonna get out of the out of the way here excuse me pardon me